everyone, and welcome to the 69th. Nice. Nice. It's a very nice. Nice. Episode of the Always Drive Podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries, where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Evelyn Riggs, and I am so thankful to report that this was a slow week. <laughs> I don't mean that as an excuse to switch over to some other podcast, because uh, things definitely did happen, and I want to tell you about them, but it, it's not like anything car-related just broke the internet this week, and I am happy for the breather. Uh, despite how it may seem, uh, this show isn't the only thing I do every week, and, and my full-time job is ramping up some very big projects that I've been consumed with. Uh, we're trying to finish up work on the basement remodel that has been almost two years in the making now. And I'm hoping I didn't break my left hand uh, while attaching a bloody IKEA soft close cabinet mechanism this afternoon. Um, on top of this all, I'm excited to say my wife and I are expecting our first child in January. So there's been a wealth of preparation work in advance of that as well, uh, including the reallocation of the term used loosely uh, studio where I record this every week. Um, I'm having trouble resisting the urge to buy every car-related onesie and uh, baby car toy I see, but since my first word was truck, um, I don't think it's a stretch to imagine my kid adopting some of my passions. Uh, so having a slow car week was a nice chance to catch my breath and not have to do a whole ton of research, but that being said, I do have a hot take for you here at the top of the show. Here's your top story. <laughs> The more I'm exposed to it, the more I come to accept that nothing good ever happens on Twitter. Um, particularly if you follow uh, Tesla founder Elon Musk, who this week tweeted a video parody of Adolf Hitler short-selling Tesla stock. Uh, investors have previously been the target of Musk's ire, though perhaps placing people who lack belief in his company's long-term prospects in the same boat as a genocidal maniac is a little in poor taste. Um, strangely, though, this wasn't even the tweet that garnered Elon his most publicity this week, though. That honor goes to a tweet wherein this Tesla CEO proposes taking the company private at a valuation of $420 per share. Um, while also probably a clever nod to stoners everywhere, this sent the investment community into a brief meltdown, which caused the stock price to rise 7.3% before trading was halted. Uh, after trading resumed about an hour and a half later, it ended up 11%, earning Elon a Securities and Exchange Commission investigation and a lawsuit claiming he was trying to defraud investors and artificially inflate the company's stock price. Remember, the stock price is also unreasonably high, but also that um, Musk's compensation has stock market valuation benchmarks that will earn him more money if the company reaches them. So it's definitely in his best interest to see the stock price climb higher and higher. But truth be told, it's in Elon's and Tesla's best interest if this works out and he's actually able to take the company private. At $420 uh, valuation per share, that values the company at about $80 billion, which Bloomberg reports would be the single largest bu leveraged buyout ever. Um, he even suggested setting up a special fund so that current investors could stay involved if they wanted to, uh, though it sounds like uh, the funds for the buyout would likely come from the Saudi Arabia 
public uh, investment fund, which has raised its stake in the company to around 5% in the last few months. Um, it'd be a clever hedge against oil uh, for the Saudis, considering that Tesla's use very little oil. Uh, so the Saudis would be well set for a future that isn't dependent on the natural resource in which they are swimming. Um, but however it happens, or whoever gets involved, Musk is right that taking Tesla private is absolutely the best thing for the company. As we've seen with Ford, the constant pursuit of shareholder satisfaction means sometimes making decisions that could someday really come back to bite you in the ass. Uh, Tesla's shareholders have so far been largely patient and generous with the company, allowing them to continue to burn cash and forego profits in favor of ramping up production. But there's a limit to that patience, and I think Elon knows it as he heads into the quarters in which he promised the company would start making money. Uh, taking the company private means it won't matter as much if they don't quite hit their target deadlines. Publicly owned companies are typically very risk-averse, preferring slow, steady growth, and Tesla's industry-disrupting, constant risk-taking, and somewhat ethically iffy culture is anything but conventional, or slow or steady. Plus, as we've seen in, the, in his incessant tweets, the stock market and investors of all kinds, can be distracting for Elon and for other employees at the company. At a time when the company needs all hands on deck to get the Model 3 into the hands of buyers, the last thing they need uh, to be doing is worrying about how the company is trading and, and what's being said by journalists, screenshotting Elon's every tweet. Um, as Musk himself said, Tesla is at their very best when everyone is focused on executing and their long-term vision and eliminating the stock market variable would be a big step in the right direction. So you ask, why now? What, what changed? Well, Mercedes, Volkswagen, Porsche, and several other mainstream car makers are very nearly ready to launch their own fully electric vehicles that will compete with the Model S and X, and I guess to a lesser extent, the Model 3, um, though that already faces competition from the Bolt. Uh, once those cars launch and start eating Tesla's lunch, the company's value is going to plummet, and finding funding for things like gigafactories in Germany and Shanghai, China is going to be very, very hard to find if your public market valuation keeps dropping. Privately, finances could be a little more obscured or fudged, and therefore less of an obvious deterrent for lenders. Plus, being a private company means Tesla can guard against hostile takeovers instead of seeing their per-share price drop to a level at which Apple or Toyota or General Motors will just want to snap them up. Their current valuation um, above many of the more established automakers is not sustainable unless they can compete on that scale, and Tesla is probably decades away from that. So the bubble is bound to burst eventually. So if Elon can take that bubble and then wrap a, a big, dark curtain around it so nobody sees it when it pops, uh, he can carry on with his company like he wants to. Plus, this frees him up to say whatever the hell he wants on Twitter without fear of SEC repercussions. One of my colleagues, uh, who occasionally listens to this show, hi Angela, um, she asked me a few months ago if I thought Tesla was going to make it, and it took me a while to answer, but my guess was that the company would be bought eventually by a car maker who wanted their Gigafactory and Fremont assembly plant to build their own vehicles in a more tried and true method of manufacturing. And Tesla might live on better under other ownership. I mean, just look at Opel and Vauxhall. 
I reported just last week that in under a year, the PSA group had turned the brands around and restored profitability that they lost under GM by finding efficiencies and through better benchmarking. I suspect Toyota or Honda or any number of other automakers could do the same with Tesla, throwing out processes like making their own door hinges or whatever they're doing to reinvent the wheel for every component of the car. But taking the company private would guard against that and allow Elon to continue his involvement with the company, allowing them to continue to take risks and disrupt the auto industry even more. So I like the move for Elon, I like the move for Tesla, but I just shudder for the accounting department of whatever entity comes forward to pony up $80 billion to make that happen, if it even does. Here are some headlines. After a few weeks without any big news, ride-sharing was back in the spotlight again this week with the news on Wednesday that New York City Council has imposed a year-long cap on new drivers for Uber, Lyft, and other similar services as the city conducts a study on the industry's effect on the city. That doesn't sound too positive given recent studies have found that the ride-sharing services have been driving traditional cabbies to commit suicide in addition to just generally making traffic way worse than it used to be. Uh, Ryan Felton of Jalopnik wrote an awesome article this week about how New York became the center of the fight against Uber, which I strongly encourage you to go read if you're interested in this sort of thing. Uh, A big takeaway of that story is that uh, New York controlled the number of cabs by issuing medallions, which regulated the industry and affect traffic. Uh, With Uber bypassing the medallion process, these cabbies who took out tremendously expensive loans to purchase them were being driven to financial ruin, all for playing the game by the rules as they were set forth. Ride-sharing services have expressed concern that the move will mean longer wait times for vehicles, which will be sure to rankle some passengers, possibly enough to get them to ride public transit, which, let's be honest, is the best way to get around New York if you're not going to walk despite the current state of the New York transit system. Uh, Additionally, the city may look at establishing a minimum wage for drivers, which would pour a healthy dose of salt on the ride-sharing company's new wounds. A study suggests uh, such a move, though, would increase pay for drivers by around 23%, which would help a lot considering about one-fifth of drivers qualify for food stamps and 40% qualify for Medicaid just because their incomes are so low. I admit that I ride for Lyft, and to a lesser extent Uber, on occasion because it's definitely cheaper and easier than calling a taxi. But once everything is put into perspective, it's sort of clear that someone is paying for your cheap ride, and oftentimes it's the driver. In other heavy news this week, Bangladesh has been in uproar over the deaths of two teenagers who were killed by a speeding bus in Dhaka. Uh, Students have been protesting since the incident on July 29th, since the current law calls for a maximum of three years in prison for killing someone with your vehicle. Students have been demanding the death penalty for accidental road deaths, which would swing the punishment very much to the opposite extreme. Uh, More than anything else, students are fed up with the current complacency, which sees more than 4,000 people a year die in road accidents in Bangladesh, which is one of the world's highest rates. Uh, With punishments so lax, it's perceived that nobody really cares if they kill someone on the roads. Uh, The government has responded by raising the maximum jail time to a whole five years, uh, while if it's determined that the deaths were caused deliberately, the death sentence will apply. 
whether this will stop kids protesting yet uh, is yet to be seen. Um, Meanwhile, back here in America, we have our own slew of dangerous idiots on the road, which this week included NASCAR CEO Brian France, who was arrested for drunk driving and possession of oxycodone after rolling his Lexus through a stop sign. Uh, While there's nothing funny about drinking and driving, uh, he's lucky he was caught before harming someone. Uh, There is a certain irony that NASCAR drivers are routinely tested for performance-enhancing drugs while doing a sport that was birthed out of the moonshine running during Prohibition. Uh, If anything, I guess France is just celebrating the sport's heritage the best way he knows how, and I'm sure he'd love nothing but to make America great again, since he did apparently mention his good friend Donald Trump during his arrest. Um, Apparently, when America was great for France was the 1920s. Um, If you're in the market for a luxury vehicle, chances are you're not considering a Maserati. Not because they're not good, fun cars, but maybe because they're slightly flammable, or because they have typical Fiat Chrysler reliability, or because most models haven't been updated in approximately 70 years. And that's only slightly an exaggeration. Um, While yes, the Levante went on sale in 2016, and... Um, is somewhat newish. Even the late Sergio Marchione bemoaned how horribly the company launched that crossover. Um, they're the hottest vehicle type right now, and they can't seem to find buyers. Uh, and then there's the Quattroporte and Ghibli, which were both new in 2013, which is five years ago, or approximately three generations of Honda Civic. Meanwhile, the Gran Turismo and Gran Cabrio have been around essentially the same, unchanged, for a whopping 11 years, so there's not a whole lot of reason to be excited about Maserati. So it's sort of no wonder deliveries in the second quarter of this year fell 41% from last year. China has driven success for many luxury automakers recently, but a nearly 70% drop in China has spelled disaster for the Italians, and much of that is on the back of new tariffs. So, if you're looking for a good deal on a temperamental Italian car, and don't mind the occasional mechanical, electrical, or aesthetic uh, hiccup, um, I'd go see what kind of deal you can swing on a Maserati these days. Um, In this week's edition of Good Intentions Gone Wrong, Ferrari is in trouble for naming a brown Ferrari California the McQueen because they did not receive approval to use Steve McQueen's trademarked name to market their products. While the company thought this was a fitting tribute, since Steve owned a brown 250 GT Berlinetta, his family is a little less enthusiastic about it. Um, Apparently, Steve's son Chad met with Ferrari about a tribute a while ago, under the understanding that the family would be able to approve the rights and be involved in the project. Well, Ferrari moved forward without doing any of that crap, um, and the family is seeking $2 million plus punitive damages for violating a registered trademark, in a case that will undoubtedly be settled and make several lawyers rich, make some kids of someone dead uh, and famous a bit of spending cash, and uh, probably make Ferrari a little less likely to make fun tribute cars in the future. Um, Not really sure why, but uh, father-son stories are are really hitting me hard these days, and uh, we had a pretty good one this week. Um, Back in 1960, a guy named Mickey Thompson took his streamlined Challenger 1 to the Bonneville Salt Flats and took his naturally aspirated vehicle all the way to 406 miles per hour, making him the first American to drive faster than 400. 
After he and his wife were murdered in 1988, their son Danny took the second iteration of their streamliner, the Challenger 2, and stored it. But this week, the salt was particularly good, and Danny brought out the old beast, first built in 1968, to try to beat his dad's record. With two runs required for official records, Danny managed an incredible 448.7 average miles per hour, not only besting his late father, but accomplishing his father's goal of hitting 450 in one of the runs. In doing so, Danny set a New World's land speed record for a piston-driven engine in the unblown fuel steamliner class. Someday, I, I'm going to have to make it out to the Salt Flats for Speed Week, and maybe I'll even get to take my little guy with me. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> we can avoid the whole murder part of that story, though. Um, in addition to being in trouble in New York, ride-sharing services are getting a little more competition in Michigan this week. Uh, Timothy Hochstedler has launched Amish Uber, uh, since he's actually Amish and is offering $5 rides across the Cologne Amish village. Uh, being Amish, uh, Tim doesn't really have a concept of how Uber works, uh, and of course he can't be hailed using an app. Uh, people just have to sort of wave him down as he rolls by, which is really more like an Amish taxi. Um, but I guess that the Amish are familiar with Uber at all just goes to show how pervasive these automotive industry disruptors have become in popular culture. Um, there's no word on if Tim will accept tips above his $5 service charge, but I'm willing to bet his horse will be pretty happy with some carrots. Um, last week it was reported, uh, but not in this podcast, that uh, Force India Formula One team had gone into bankruptcy over unpaid bills because, uh, hey, F1's really freaking expensive. Uh, well, their problems have been solved by an unlikely source, the father of Lance Stroll, who races for Force India competitor Williams. Fortunately for Force India, Stroll's dad Lawrence is a billionaire, which must be awfully nice, uh, who saw that Force India needed a hand and he was able to offer one. Apparently, Force India is a pretty well-organized group that only stopped development because they couldn't afford it. Uh, legendary racing driver Jacques Villeneuve uh, went on record to suggest that Lance switch from the struggling Williams team immediately, not just because he'd get a better team, but because having your dad own your competitors might just look like a little bit of a conflict of interest. Um, at least it sounds like Lance is actually a pretty good driver who's earned his seat rather than just buying it, but... With a billionaire dad, he's probably bought a little bit of it. Um, in Japan, when your company's done a bad thing, the traditional method of seeking forgiveness involves a press conference and deep bow for the media to capture. Uh, well, there's been a lot of bowing going on in Japan these days, with several automakers being found to be cutting corners when it comes to emissions and fuel efficiency testing. Japan places strict testing procedures on cars being sold within the country. Uh, your Corolla, that they couldn't give two shits about. But this week, Mazda, Suzuki, and Yamaha were all found to have used unauthorized employees to approve the test results. Um, to approve test results that may have deviated slightly from their strict standards. What's crazy about this is that there's likely nothing wrong with these cars. When Subaru was found doing the same thing, they had to recall some vehicles, but not on a massive scale. I think Japan has largely earned their reputation as makers of the most reliable vehicles on the planet, so if anything, I think this points to the ridiculous over-strenuousness of the mandated testing. But if I'm wrong, I will then apologize and bow in advance. You just won't be able to see it because uh, podcast. 
Um, believe it or not, there are still drivers out there who haven't gotten their faulty Takata airbags replaced, and Ford is doing their part to get their customers safe. About 33,000 Ranger pickups were equipped with the bad airbags, and while 75% have been replaced, there's still more than 8,000 pickups out there with deadly airbags waiting to blow. To more rapidly resolve the issue, Ford is paying its dealers $1,000 for each Ranger they locate and fix, adding a healthy incentive for two retailers to hunt down buyers and get them in. While it seems pretty drastic, given that the company could be out a cool $8 million if they find every last Ranger, you can bet that $8 mil is probably less than they'd have to pay out in a wrongful death lawsuit. Uh, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I've been struck with the truck bug, uh, and I've been looking at old SUVs to build into an overland vehicle for camping and some light off-roading. And if there's one thing I've learned is that if you plan on doing any sort of off-roading whatsoever, you get a cheap, cheap truck that you do not care about if you scrape it against some rocks or slide it down a hill onto a tree or manage to flood it while trying to ford a stream. Um, nevertheless, it was reported this week that Range Rovers in the U.S. will come equipped with wade sensors, uh, which will make it easier to determine the depth of water you are wading into with your $100,000 SUV. They might as well have put airspeed velocity sensors on these cars to determine how fast you're going over those sweet jumps you're taking, because who in their right freaking minds is going to take a Range Rover and say, oh, I wonder how deep that water is over there. Let me take this vehicle that costs as much as some nice small houses and find out. This just goes hand in hand with Land Rover's recent trademark application for the name Road Rover, because the company does not kid themselves. They know where their vehicles are really being driven, and the parking lot at the mall must have really genuinely bad drainage for this vehicle to ever get any use. <laughs> the current generation of Mustang is, in my opinion, probably the best-looking version of the pony car ever, and I enjoy seeing them out on the road, which I feel like I do all the time. Um, I even got to drive a few of them in Hawaii and really enjoyed them, even though they were the Echo Boost four-cylinder. It turns out you see a lot of the Mustang because they make a lot of them since it's been the world's fastest or best-selling sports car for the past five decades. And over the 54 years it's been produced, they have made an absolute ton of them. In fact, this week, the 10 millionth Mustang rolled off the line at the Flat Rock assembly plant. Painted in the same Wimbledon white as the first Mustang, it was also a fairly plain white convertible. Like the original, it has a V8 and a manual transmission, but this is about all that the two cars have in common. In 54 years, the V8 has gained about 300 more horsepower than the original, and three more speeds to the transmission. Uh, it's a really neat milestone for Ford, and for the Mustang, and I'm happy that the Mustang was spared the chopping block, like all of Ford's other cars. Uh, in a story... Another story that will assure you that Florida is indeed its own planet. Uh, a herd of cows is being credited with helping apprehend a car thief this week. Uh, the story goes something like this. Cops spot a stolen Subaru and try to pull it over, and the driver bolts. She crashes into a ditch and bails with her passenger, each running off in different directions. A canine unit caught the fleeing passenger in a bush, and the driver fled into a cow pasture. Freaked out a bit by the stranger being in their pen, the cows started running after the thief, making it pretty easy for the helicopter with thermal camera to follow her path. 
Uh, somehow, the cows herded the woman directly to some waiting authorities who arrested her. Uh, the cow pasture owner said he's never had a problem with the cows acting aggressively in decades, but he's also never had a criminal run through their enclosure. Uh, maybe cows are just a bit smarter than we give them credit for, uh, which must make us even smarter for eating them, right? Uh, now for some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless you might see me in my with my New cars were hard to come by this week, so we're traveling all the way to China for a new Ford. Uh, truth be told, it's not even new. <laughs> Uh, Ford is launching the Territory, a mid-sized crossover based on the old Australian Falcon platform in China, in a bid to grow the brand there. It's designed as basically just a lot of vehicle for the money, costing just the equivalent of $22,000, which is really low for a mid-sized SUV crossover thingy. Uh, Ford anticipates the Chinese market will be about double the size of America in just a few years, so they're banking on the fact that making a cheap and easy mainstream vehicle will have them seeing dollar signs despite the increasing tariffs on imported vehicles. But if you're hoping for a cheap Ford SUV here, don't get your hopes up because this thing isn't even being sold in Australia where it originated. It's China only, which I think is a trend that we're probably going to see more and more, especially if the trade war escalates. In Germany this week, Munich-based Sono Motors debuted the Scion, which is of no relation to the defunct Toyota subbrand. Uh, instead, Scion is an all-electric vehicle covered in solar panels that will allow you to charge it while you're driving, provided, of course, it's sunny. Um, if you're expecting some sort of perpetual motion machine, though, you'll be disappointed to learn that this vehicle requires charging at a station to reach its 155-mile range. Um, that said, the solar panels are apparently better than those on the old Prius that only serve to operate the HVAC fan motor. Uh, the Scion will be a fairly bare-bones car when it goes on sale, allegedly in the second half of next year, costing just around $18,540. Though it's been described as no frills, it does have a large infotainment screen, air conditioning, and seat heaters, and really, what else do you need? <laughs> um... That's about it. Like I said, it was a pretty pretty easy week this week, um, but I do have a call to action. So my physical therapist moved offices this week from one nearer my house to one near downtown where I work. Uh, parking in downtown St. Louis is, like any biggish city, a pain in the ass. So I opted to leave my car parked at my office and instead take one of the many electric scooters that have been popping up in the city. Although I firmly believe that these dockless bikes and scooters are a blight because of the dorky-looking people riding them, just leaving them wherever the hell they want, I will absolutely admit that I had fun scooting around downtown at 15 miles per hour. I won't say that, uh, like the Camaro, I really get it yet, but I'll say that this was not my last time scootering. As a personal note, I did like the bird scooter better than the lime scooter, so there's a top tip, uh, some consumer advice for you. But this week, the call to action is to put aside your assumptions and, and try something new. I'm, I'm sure I look like a dork on the scooter, as most scooterers do, but hey, I had fun, and I got to PT early, so you never know what you're going to like if you give something a try. Uh, thank you for listening, and thank you to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. Uh, because of its incredible milestone this week, and because there are few sounds more intoxicating than a 5-liter V8, I bring you the Ford Mustang. 
Here, friends, is your moment of zen. Thank you.